Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Today on The Art of Range, we have uh, several guests again. We're going to have a, a bit of a discussion about some cheatgrass research, the relationships among invasive annual grasses, semi-arid plant communities, domestic livestock grazing, and fire are fantastically complex. And there's so many variables and so many potential combinations that it's difficult to make universally applicable statements about this is the way things are. In addition to that, in, in a in a true field research situation, it's really difficult to hold everything constant except for the one variable you want to test. And so uh, there are lots and lots of research results that sometimes appear to be contradictory to each other. The challenge for those of us who manage land is to take all of that and put it together into something that makes sense. Uh, so we have several people on the, on the recording today and we'll just go around and introduce everybody, and then we'll, we'll begin a discussion. Karen, why don't we start with you? All right. This is Karen Lodgebaugh. I'm a professor at the University of Idaho. I'm also director of the Rangeland Center. My background is completely in grazing ecology, so I've worked quite a bit on cheatgrass and especially on targeted grazing. So I think that'll be a good contrast today to think about grazing and cheatgrass, but also targeted grazing for cheatgrass control. So I look forward to it. Thank you. Barry? Yes, uh, Barry Perryman. I'm a professor of rangeland ecology at the University of Nevada, Reno. I've been doing a little bit of cheatgrass work for the last 10 years or so between here and Central Asia. So I uh, have a little bit of experience with, uh, with the topic. Thank you. And I'm here at the Boise uh, Idaho Water Center with Matt Williamson and Eric Winford. And I'll let Matt introduce himself. Thanks, Tip. Uh, my name is Matt Williamson. I'm an assistant professor in the human environment systems here at Boise State uh, and previously ran a ranch in Arizona where cheatgrass was a particularly uh, challenging problem and the author of a recent paper looking at about 14 years of data across four mountain ranges in, in Nevada and looking at how things like elevation, uh, winter and spring precipitation, fire history, and grazing interact to uh, affect cheatgrass occurrence and abundance. And so, as Tip mentioned, uh, one of the big challenges anytime you're looking across a landscape of that size is dealing with the fact that there are a lot of other things varying besides the variables you might be interested in. And so, one of the novel parts of the analysis that we did here um, was sort of giving all of those site-specific variables every opportunity possible to uh, explain variation outside of our of our different uh, ideas about what might affect cheatgrass. And so, even in the face of quite a bit of uh, variation in the landscape, we still found some pretty strong associations with things like elevation uh, and winter precipitation, and of course, time since fire, but also grazing. Um, and so the challenge becomes, or maybe the, the challenge is, 
how to make sense of a study uh, at that time scale and across the landscape of, of that magnitude with the work that a number of us have done in sort of more uh, targeted or directed locations. And I'm hoping that that can be part of the conversation today. Uh, I also think it's worth having a, a broader bit of thought on what grazing in the Great Basin, specifically around objectives like reducing fire or restoring these plant communities might look like and, and what we might need to, to do as a society and as a group of, of land managers and a group of scientists to affect that change. Yeah, I like that. If, you know, if, if I'm talking to a group of ranchers, I guess the summary of, of what I would typically say is that if we, it, it may be true that grazing is one of the ways that we can reduce the intensity and spatial extent of wildfire, uh, but that if we if we just have the attitude that uh, if we take everything, it reduces fine fuel loads and therefore it reduces fire, that's a little bit of an overly broad brush because that kind of heavy grazing at the same time of the year every year uh, can convert an otherwise healthy plant community into one that's much more flammable than it was otherwise. So I think it's really important to try to get to some of the, the nuance of, of what characterizes a plant community that is uh, naturally resistant to cheatgrass invasion, resilient to uh, the effects of fire, maybe even fire that's occurring at a, at, a, at a shorter fire return interval than it did historically. And in places where there's, uh, where there are grazing animals, how do we do that in a way that, that doesn't exacerbate the, the cheatgrass problem? I think it might be interesting uh, for folks that haven't been up close and personal with on-the-ground research to describe kind of the approach uh, with this most recent study that you guys did. Sure. So uh, we had sort of two teams of folks who have been doing a variety of, of research uh, across the Great Basin, but, but primarily uh, in Nevada, that have been collecting information on uh, cheatgrass and occurrence associated with a variety of other research that they were doing. And um, we were talking about this fact that we had this sort of giant data set of 15 years worth of fairly consistently collected data uh, and that it might be one of the ways that we could start to dig into some of the complexity uh, of, of what drives cheatgrass occurrence across uh, spatial scales like mountain ranges or, or canyons within mountain ranges. And so what we ended up doing was to take uh, cheatgrass presence and absence at each of these sites across each of these years and use some regression models, uh, just a statistical model with uh, a variety of different variables. Our original interest actually was in trying to figure out uh, two things. Number one, how does elevation actually affect cheatgrass occurrence and abundance? And, and number two, a number of our management partners were interested in, in the question of how long do you need to keep a fire out of a system before you start seeing some of these communities bounce back? And so uh, those were our two primary interests. But because I think, uh, as all of us are, are aware, um, cheatgrass being an annual, it can sort of fluctuate pretty widely with things like climate, uh, and a number of other sort of site history 
variables. And so we included a number of climatic variables to try and account for that. We included uh, perennial grass cover as a, a way of sort of trying to characterize uh, the invasibility of, of a site. Um, included time since fire and then also uh, another term for time since fire that should indicate whether there's any sort of downward trend in those sites that fire had been kept out of for a long time. Uh, and then we used grazing and we used a pretty simple uh, uh, metric of grazing and that was just had it occurred within the pasture in the year prior to measurement. So not getting at the nuance of intensity, mm-hmm. not getting at the nuance of what the rotation for a particular operator might look like, just simply saying, had cattle been within that pasture mm-hmm. prior to the measurement. And so we had all those things. And then we basically had a series of um, indicators for the mountain range, for the canyon, and for the site itself to allow for the fact that these sites might just be so different from each other that it actually doesn't have anything to do with the variables that we were measuring. It, it might actually just be that these sites are different. Um, and so we, we fit those models and, and we found that even when you account for a pretty large amount of uh, variability amongst these sites, uh, we're still able to pick up some signals in the variables. And so elevation uh, plays a role both in where cheatgrass occurs, but also in how abundant it is. So, you know, there is an upper limit to where cheatgrass occurs currently. Um, but once you're inside that upper limit, the higher the elevation, as you might expect, the more cheatgrass you find because it's a little bit wetter, a little bit cooler. Um, and time since fire obviously plays a bit of a role. And we did see a signal of, of the chance for there to be uh, some downturn if you can hold fire out for long enough. But in the ranges, the mountain ranges we looked at, uh, For the most part, there aren't very many sites that get out beyond sort of a 10-year window where they haven't been burned. Wow. Um, And then, of course, the the, um, both the presence of grazing prior to the year of measurement and the proportion of years prior to that measurement uh, where a pasture had been grazed also showed up as being pretty strongly associated with cheatgrass occurrence and abundance. on sites that either hadn't been burned at all uh, or on sites that had been sort of further outside of that burn history. In the places where uh, fire had been relatively recent, we did see some decline in uh, cheatgrass abundance from something like 70% or, uh, 70% probability of cheatgrass being there down to like 65. Um, and you know, there, there are reasons to explore that number, I think, as well. Um, but we also saw all live vegetation decline on those sites. And so post fire, the landscape is a little bit rough looking. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think in general, I guess the thing to, to sort of say is that we didn't experimentally manipulate grazing. What Mm -hmm. we were interested in was trying to understand across a big chunk of Nevada, given sort of the status quo approach to how these allotments and landscapes have been managed, what were the variables that tended to explain where cheatgrass was occurring? Uh, And so in that way, this isn't really an experimental result so much as it is uh, a reflection of some version of current conditions subject to the site histories of those those locations. It's an analysis of current conditions relative to site use. Right, relative to site use and allowing for a pretty... uh, diverse 
set of land management histories across those different mountain ranges and canyons and recognizing that uh, localized precip is as, as big a uh, factor in determining what year-to-year -year variability looks like as a number of those things and trying to account for all of those pieces to figure out which uh, which of our factors sort of showed up as being consistently important in explaining where cheatgrass occurs and when it occurs abundance between years. Is it known for how many of those sites cheatgrass have been present for a long time, as in many decades before that? Because some of my experience with Washington State uh, sites is that it seems like many of those uh, tipped over that threshold into a new, the state change happened, you know, 75, 80 years ago. And that in the, once that happened, it tended to be pretty persistent, even in spite of, you know, what, what would otherwise be what I would call sustainable grazing management. So you have operators who are managing on a landscape that uh, maybe if not dominated by cheatgrass, there's quite a lot of cheatgrass there. And, uh, but that, that condition preceded them by quite a lot. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. And I guess the, the, to answer your question about when and to what extent was cheatgrass already present on those sites, I'm probably not the person to answer that. People like Erica Fleischman or, or Gene Chambers spent quite a bit more time in those sites in the years mm -hmm. prior to, to a number of this number of the data that we used used here. But I think it is uh, there is an interesting question, uh, which is what is what does sort of sustainable grazing management look like if you are past that threshold. And I, I don't have the answer to that. And mm -hmm. I think that's uh, a place that would be interesting to talk about if the objective is, is somehow setting cheatgrass backwards on that trajectory, right. whether it's uh, because of cattle, contemporary cattle management or contemporary livestock management or something that happened closer to the turn of the century. Uh, I think it, I think we still have to sort of wrestle with the fact that whoever caused it, this is the current condition that, that livestock oh, operators sure. are, are encountering. And if our goal is to reduce cheatgrass on some of these allotments, then, right. then I think at least our results for this area suggest that uh, the, the approaches commonly being used aren't pushing us towards that. Toward less cheatgrass. I'm not, I can't speak to how much worse it might be right. if we were managing these livestock differently, but I, I can say that our data don't suggest that we're moving towards a more sustainable uh, plant community composition, mm -hmm. if that is the goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the other question that it begs in terms of research approach and interpretation is uh, how, do you, how do you tease out association versus causation? You know, to what extent is the juxtaposition of an environmental condition and a factor like grazing evidence of uh, you know a, a causal relationship or just the fact that they happen to be coexisting i say that probably because cheatgrass is nearly ubiquitous across the west as well as uh, as is grazing right it would be tough to uh, actually pull off the controlled 
experiment across the West to do that. And, and right. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, what happens in Nevada is probably not the same thing as what happens in Eastern Oregon. Uh, certainly we've seen some different things, uh, on work that Barry and I have collaborated on in, in Arizona that suggests that, um, it's not so simple to say that livestock causes cheatgrass, but I'm not entirely positive that that is actually the question that will lead us to a more sustainable right. uh, system in, in big chunks of the area west. That I think whether uh, cows cause cheatgrass or whether cows exacerbate cheatgrass, et cetera, those things are all sort of uh, subject to the first, what I would say is the first uh, question, and that is, how are we managing these things generally? And, and I think there have been a lot of people who have done really cool experiments showing that under certain conditions and in certain places, there are opportunities to use livestock as a tool. I think our results suggest that that's not the general case, meaning that that isn't sort of the status quo for how these right. landscapes are being made. We're not seeing that happen everywhere. That's right. And I right. think there are a lot of interesting questions to be asked about why why not? What is it that we need to do if, if, if folks feel like there is uh, a path forward? What are the barriers to those things? And, and I don't know that uh, attributing causation to livestock is necessarily the first thing we have to figure out on our way towards a more sustainable mm -hmm. approach to managing livestock in the West. Yeah, and for those of us who are in a position of uh, advising livestock producers on on what those things are that may be useful for improving their own uh, their own plant communities and plant com communities around the rest uh, and some of the details of, of what that grazing might look like uh, matter quite a bit i had a rancher tell me one time the first rule of grazing management is that the cows have to be somewhere <laughs> and you know i like to say that a grazing plan includes where animals are going to be when and for how long and why i think that nearly covers it but there's there's quite a few just in that there's quite a few variables and then and then beyond that if, if we include the duration of grazing use you know the severity of defoliation the amount of time this the phenological stage of plant growth on on both the uh, the weedy species and the ones that we'd like to promote uh, you know, the, the list could go on of the things that we can attempt to manipulate. And of course, saying that assumes that if we make a recommendation that uh, ranchers will make an attempt to manipulate that. Um, I, th I think this is one of the, the fallacies that I am prone to fall into in, in thinking that I tend to come at land management from the plant perspective where I'm thinking, how do we do, you know, what do, in, in my opinion, anything is fair game if it improves the condition of the plant community over time. And my sense is that most, uh, I don't want to say forward thinking is a little bit too, has too much connotative baggage, but you know, ranchers that take a long view, I think are, are thinking that way as well, because uh, long-term a healthy plant community is one that's profitable for somebody who's making a living converting plant tissue into, into something we can sell, pounds of protein. And so I think there is a, a direct economic link between managing uh, plant communities sustainably and and taking care of uh, ranchers and communities that depend on them. 
Uh, but but the fallacy on my part is is thinking that you know if this is a good thing to do, then that should be the driving factor in how a rancher chooses to manage cattle. When when he's got a lot, he or she has lots of other factors involved in how they decide when and where and how many and for how long and to what severity of defoliation do we put animals. So I, I think I'm going to throw this over to Karen. Uh, Karen, what, what would you say we think we know now about uh, trying to manipulate some of those variables in grazing uh, to do something more than just remove a little bit of biomass every year? Great. Thanks, Tip. Um, first of all, uh, Matt, I, you know, I've done a lot of research and hardly anything I've ever done is brought across as much news as this article that you've got here. And um, I think sometimes you got to be careful about what makes the news. You know, the article was pretty well balanced, and but what made the news was that grazing is bad for cheatgrass. And I know Barry will back me up on this. Grazing is not grazing is not grazing. Uh, we know that we can use really careful grazing to suppress cheatgrass and give the benefits back to the perennial uh, grasses, especially. Um, but we also know we can get more cheatgrass if we graze it wrong. And I think uh, the other problem and the challenge that you attempted to um, address in this article is like, how do you do landscape, big, huge landscape level research? And when you do that, you're often stuck with these really crude tools that are basically correlation and regression as opposed to real scientific experimental methods. So, yeah, but people out on the street, they don't know exactly anything what that means about regression versus ANOVAs, et cetera. So I, I'm going to just go back and say that uh, just because there was some correlation with grazing doesn't mean that that we can't manage grazing to manage cheatgrass. It does seem that status quo is is not making it. And I think that's where Barry has a lot to say um, about things that have happened. And you found in Nevada. So I'm going to defer to Barry about that status quo. Oh, gee, thanks, Karen. Uh, I'm trying to get my microphone replaced here where it needs to be. Uh, thanks, Tip, for putting this thing together. And thank everybody for your time this afternoon to kind of visit about this. Uh, and, and yes, I would echo um, what Karen was getting at quite quite frequently, what we see sometimes in the literature, and and is this this concept that grazing is a noun, and it's not a noun. This binary approach uh, to grazing, it was either grazed or it wasn't grazed, uh, isn't very helpful. And uh, you know, there's timing, there's duration, there's intensity, and, and Matt, you know, you talked about that. There's also legacy grazing effects. You know, I've seen papers, and uh, you know, we've all seen papers that have been published in the last few years that, uh, you know, the folks they can't tell you whether what they measured is something that's a result of something that happened a hundred years ago, or whether it's happened under the contemporary management scenarios that we have today. Uh, and, and when you don't clarify those things, it's not helpful, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, you know, quite honestly, it, there's a spectrum of naivety to scientific malfeasance. And, you know, it, it falls somewhere uh, on, along that spectrum. And, you know, people can make up their own minds about 
you know, where this piper or that piper might fall on that spectrum. But, uh, uh, you know, grazing is not a noun. And if you don't tell me something about, you know, timing, duration, intensity, legacy effects, those kinds of things, and, and, and really tease out those nuances, then it, it can, you know, somebody will, we, we have groups, and, and I've already had calls from Capitol Hill uh, wanting to know what's going on with this, you know, this particular paper. And, and uh, uh, we have groups whose business models are based on litigation. And they're more than willing to just grab something and, uh, you know, and, and run with it. And so we have to be very careful about um, trying to place livestock grazing, whatever kind of livestock grazing it is, uh, in the proper context. And, and sometimes that's not an easy thing to do. But, uh, but we have to do the best that we can, I think, to try and, and do that. And because... Again, grazing is not a noun. Uh, there's grazing can be bad if it's done improperly. It can be benign, I guess is a good term for it, have no effect, uh, or it can have beneficial effects. And and uh, it has to be it has to be teased out and laid out in a context so that that uh, uh, people understand, you know, really understand, particularly managers. Uh, can understand what's going on. So uh, we've been, you know, we've been toying around with this idea of grazing cheatgrass in the fall for a while in the Great Basin. Uh, it seems to work pretty well there. Um, and we just, I think we just got one worked out the other day on the, on the seed bank, cheatgrass seed bank, uh, and the decreases in cheatgrass seed bank uh, based on fall grazing, uh, and uh, we've uh, we've got a paper out there on changing paradigms, uh, management paradigms. And, you know, the one thing that I would agree with is that what we've been doing for the last forty years is uh, uh, has not been all that successful at keeping cheatgrass at bay. Uh, but there are some creative things I think that we can do in the Great Basin that. Uh, uh, that are out there, that are in the scientific literature, and that are being expanded uh, even as we speak. I know there's a, a big study going up on up in eastern Oregon now. Uh, we've got, uh, we also have uh, demonstration projects uh, scattered around that uh, are sort of showing this, this fall grazing technique, uh, providing some success for changing and altering the fuel characteristics of, of uh, uh, areas that are mixed perennial and annual grasses. And, and of course, that's one thing that we've, we've argued for a couple of years now is that we need to quit looking at these, um, these types of ecosystems as degraded sagebrush systems or degraded perennial systems. They are a mixed annual perennial grassland system that has some, you know, uh, sagebrush on it from time to time. And until we, until we face face what the reality is we're we're, we're going to have uh, issues in trying to come up with uh, with some solutions as we move into the next century so uh, I'll throw it back to you tip at this point in time and and uh, we can we can proceed sure yeah we've had some discussion on the podcast before uh, with you 
Barry and with Kurt Davies, uh, who was not able to join us today, about the ecological mechanisms involved in fall and winter grazing of cheatgrass and that perhaps making a dent more than more than spring grazing. Uh, I'm, I'm curious too what Karen thinks about this, but my impression of attempts to use spring grazing on cheatgrass, which that seems to make some sense because you, in terms of a general principle for biological or culture, cultural control of a problem plant, uh, you want to damage it when it's susceptible to being damaged and having that either suppress seed production or cause direct mortality of the plant. Uh, and and with cheatgrass, that can be done in mid-spring when it's trying to produce a seed head. I feel like the limiting factor there, though, is that uh, going back to that frills rule of grazing management, uh, the cattle have to be somewhere. The flip side of that is the cattle can't be everywhere. And so, you know, if we might be able to successfully treat, um, you know, say a, a few hundred acres on a large ranch during that narrow window when the cheatgrass could be damaged by grazing the seed heads off. Uh, the problem is that if cheatgrass is everywhere and it requires repeated treatment in order to make any difference, then you can focus treatment in one spot, but in the meantime, you know, you're letting all the cheatgrass go to seed somewhere else. That feels like the main limiting factor in trying to use targeted grazing in the springtime to control cheatgrass, uh, which is why I'm kind of excited about the possibility of fall and winter grazing. Uh, and maybe, maybe here's a question for both Karen and Barry. My understanding of what had been the case in much of central and eastern Washington and perhaps Oregon as well is that historically there was a fair bit of fall and winter grazing on, uh, on rangelands historically. And at some point that changed where most ranches were, uh, you know, using something else for winter pasture, either, either stuff closer to home or they're just f flat out feeding hay for most of the winter, which I think is more common than not. I think that's beginning to change again, but I'm curious if any, if anybody's aware of some reasons why that, might have shifted. Uh, and then I guess the second question is, uh, Barry, I think it'd be worth talking again through the mechanisms for why fall and winter grazing uh, may be more promising than spring grazing. Okay. So I'll talk about the spring and fall and then Barry, you can uh, add whatever you'd like. Uh, you're, you're exactly right, Tip, that um, as far as I see it, the seedgrass is, is susceptible to grazing early in the spring, and there's some research that shows that. You know, anytime you set a plant back right as it starts to produce seed, that usually uh, reduces its vigor and its root size, etc. And on the on these Zemina Mountain bunch grass sites that we have, that can work pretty well, especially if you're using that transitional grazing where you have winter range, spring fall, and then you go up into the mountains. Okay, so I don't have any really good data on this, and I hate to go to anecdotal evidence, but I've seen a lot of early spring range that has it has cheatgrass, but it's at pretty low abundance. And I think it's because as those cattle or sheep moved up in elevation, they caught that cheatgrass early on, just the time when those perennials started to come on and produce more seed. So I could go to a bunch of places that I think should have more cheatgrass, but they don't. And I think it's probably because of that early spring grazing, which leads into the next thing. I, I feel like we're not using 
uh, a lot of that transitional grazing and trying to really look, think of spring fall range as we did when we had a lot of sheep operations. And then shortly after that, cattle started using those same ranges, much in the same way that sheep had. So my kind of historical thought on that is that, that this was a sheep grazing, moving up in elevation, and then the cattlemen followed it. And I think the operations are just different now. So I think you're right. It's hard to control cheatgrass with spring grazing because it's a really tight time. You need a lot of animals. And then maybe we got to quit thinking about like getting rid of all the cheatgrass and maybe just keeping it at a low level. Because remember, in the spring, cheatgrass is pretty good forage. So, gosh, that's complicated. I loved your term about the uh, fantastically complex situation tip, and that's one of those. There's like no one way to do this. But I've seen people be successful by watching things on the ground. Now, this whole idea of grazing in fall and winter is actually really pretty new in terms of science. And so, Barry, you've really opened my eyes about how we might be able to use that out-of-growing-season grazing to affect cheatgrass. Uh, thanks, Karen. Um, yes, and of course, keep in mind, too, I mean, this goes back to sort of what we were what we were originally talking about, is what may be useful as a tool to, to manage cheatgrass abundance, whatever term you want to use. What works in the northern and central Great Basin may be something completely different than what's going to work in western Montana or in or down on the strip. Uh, it's just it's different. And so we you know keep in mind that we're 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 kind of focusing, trying to stay focused on on this central northern uh, Great Basin sort of an area. And <clears throat> one of the issues with with uh, you know grazing cheatgrass in the spring, it's just the logistics of it. It's just, you, you know, you don't know when you're going to get it from one year to the next. Uh, you don't know how much you're going to get until you've got it almost. And then you don't know how long you're going to be able to stay on it because I've seen, you know, we've all seen this stuff put out a seed head in a week. And as soon as it, it puts out a seed head and turns purple, well, then their diet preferences are going to change to perennials. And that may not be the best time of the year. Uh, to to graze perennials at the densities that you're going to have animals out there for cheatgrass purposes, and and so um, you know it kind kind of comes back to what Tip was was alluding to earlier. You know, cows have to be somewhere, and uh, uh, you know you can't just hold them back and hold them back, waiting on something to happen. But in the fall, what happens? You know, by by mid August, certainly by first of September, in most years. Uh, the seeds have dropped. It becomes cheatgrass becomes very palatable again. Uh, it's pretty nutritious for the most part. It's at least as nutritious as a lot of our our perennial grasses are that time of the year. Uh, and um, uh, you can go out and you can measure how much standing production you have. So you can determine how many animals you would need to, and the time that you would need to reach some sort of target level. Uh, and so the logistics of it uh, become really nice. The the perennial plants uh, typically are, uh, you know, senescent by that period of time. So you're not going to be, you know, doing anything with the growing points that's going to be detrimental. Most of the time with most of our sequences for uh, uh, uh Reproductive management, our cattle are, are somewhere in their late first trimester, early second trimester, so their nutritional demands are, are lower 
uh, during that fall period and, and sometimes on into, into early winter. So just the logistics of it makes it really kind of uh, easy uh, in the fall in the in the Great Basin once again, northern and central Great Basin to to sort of uh, uh, get out there and get some of this fuel. You know, carry it's going to be carryover fuel in the first place. If you get rid of some carryover fuel, that's always great. Uh, but what we think is going on, what seems to be happening uh, from the research that we've done and, and published is is we think that there's there's a safe site issue. And cheatgrass does really, really well when it has a lot of standing dead biomass that's really spread out uh, across um, uh, across its range. And and so when you remove that that standing dead litter, cheatgrass litter primarily, but it can be perennial grass litter as well. When you remove it in the fall, and when cheatgrass is germinating, it germinates and die. It dies a lot of it. Uh, it seems to be what's happening, and uh, eventually that affects, you know, the seed bank, uh, and it also, you know, on an annual basis affects how many cheatgrass plants are actually, uh, you know, skipping the mortality uh, that they would otherwise uh, if they were uh, didn't have a lot of uh, this standing dead biomass. You know, you can go out in, in November and you know, October, uh, and lots of places in the in, in the central and northern Great Basin after a nice rain and two or three good warm days. And you can find literally <laughs> millions, I don't know, maybe more than that, seedlings in the two or three leaf stage cheatgrass seedlings that, that haven't even put out a root yet. And uh, and so uh, they don't tend, they just don't do very well on uh, on bare soil. So the lower the litter during that period of time seems to be one of the keys, not all of the keys, but one of the keys that uh, that that may be playing into uh, the effects that that fall and early winter grazing are having on on cheatgrass dominance in these areas. Once again, that are mixed perennial annual um, uh, ecosystem or, or range sites, uh, ecological sites. Uh, you know, you've got to have some perennial plants out there to respond. Uh, and if you don't, well, you know, it's sort of all bets are off until you, until you try and get something, uh, something out there to compete with the cheatgrass. So, um, so with that, I'll throw it back to Karen and, and see if she has something she wants to add uh, to, to what you I've got, a, tip. I've got a question there regarding litter. I've been chewing on this since we talked about it last that I'm, I see the connection between litter and cheatgrass abundance. One, because they have the ability to grow through it. Mm -hmm. Two, because what I think I know about perennial grasses from plant materials folks is that most of them require contact with bare mineral soil for germination. And so if you've got, even if you've got a remnant perennial population, as long as there's a high litter layer, it nearly prohibits, uh, inhibits uh, germination and establishment. You're absolutely right. You know, the first time I went over to, to Central Asia and I'm trying to figure out, you know, the ancestral home of cheatgrass, trying to figure out what's going on. Well, well uh, uh, bulbous bluegrass is very common over there with cheatgrass. Well, it has the ability to work its way through that litter layer, if there is a litter layer, and uh, and gets down to the soil. And, and they, the uh, some of the, the, the pioneers, you know, A.W. Sampson is some of those guys 
back in the 20s, when you go and you, you consult the foundation literature, which is something I always encourage young, uh, young folks to do, uh, you go back and look at the foundation literature, they thought the very same thing. I thought I'd come up with something novel, and I started looking at that, and uh, they were actually bringing, uh, bringing uh, bulbous bluegrass back and testing it up in eastern Washington to compete with cheatgrass back in the 1920s. So yeah. you're thinking, you're yeah, thinking you know, like a lot of people have been thinking for a while. My my question that feels a little bit antagonistic to that is that fire is pretty good at removing litter. At least when we do prescribed fire, that's one of the ways, one of the reasons why we do it is to to get rid of litter layers. Whether it's um, you know a, a giant reed situation on a semi wetland or or cheatgrass range, fire is pretty good at removing litter. So does the does the litter build back up fast enough that that still is self-perpetuating uh, for the cheatgrass or is the periodic fire i'm trying to reconcile the litter problem with the fact that fire removes litter yeah. but litter promotes cheatgrass and fire promotes cheatgrass uh, two two quick things one what is your window of opportunity whenever you have a fire for reseeding it's the first year it's mm-hmm. the first year when the litter is is at its lowest point and so what we found uh hopefully this will be out in the next or sometime in the next couple of months anyway what we found is that all you have to do is stop grazing cheatgrass in the fall for one year. Uh, you know, if you have any kind of moisture at all, you know, I'm speaking gen- general terms now. And within one year, it's already get, the seed bank is already back up to the to the pre grazing levels. So it doesn't take very long for it to it to to build its seed bank up within a year or two. And, uh, and you're right back to where you were prior to the fire or whatever other disturbance was out there. So it's, it's fast. So that first year after the fire, that's our window of opportunity for, for, doing, for, you know, for getting anything done with respect to reseeding. And uh, that's right. one of the reasons why. Not the only reason, but one of the reasons. I wonder, Barry, if, if you could speak a little bit more about that. And, and I think there are places where this conversation um, we are sort of blurring the, the lines between reducing fire spread versus trying to get something else established in those windows where, we, where we've where we knocked cheatgrass back. And I know on some of the work that you and I did together in Nevada, we found that uh, not grazing those paddocks that we seeded uh, for the first couple of years was, was pretty important for uh, actually getting perennials to establish uh, but we also found that that maybe created fuel loadings that uh, would be less than desirable if you're if you're thinking about that at the landscape scale. And so I, I, I wanted to sort of try and understand exactly the, the trade-offs between the kinds of fall grazing you're describing in terms of reducing fuel loads versus the kinds of fall grazing that we uh, tried in, in central Nevada as a means of, of establishing seeded in perennial plants well yeah it's it's complicated isn't it <laughs> it depends you're damned if you do and yeah, damned it, if you it don't. depends and <laughs> and so uh there there are appropriate times to to use certain types of grazing timing duration intensity uh that will achieve your goals and there are other times when it's not going to achieve the goals that you want and so uh, 
and this can happen from one year to the next. It's just very, very complicated. And I know uh, some of the stuff that we did up there in, in Boulder Valley, it was, it was pretty dry um, that first year. Uh, and I know that, uh, uh, that there was some irrigation tried just to keep some of the perennial plants alive out there. So, you know, what effect that may have had uh, certainly had some effect, but it's, it's just very, uh, very complex. And anytime you're going to go in and graze uh, areas that have been reseeded, particularly if you're going to graze them in the spring in particular, uh, it's, boy, it, it, it's, I, you have to be a little bit hesitant to try and do that simply because you want those, uh, you know, those newly introduced seedlings to really take hold and uh, uh, not desiccate uh, for whatever reasons. And so it can be, it can be problematic. Um, and so you try a few things and see if they work. Sometimes they do. Sometimes the magic works. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, it's not that simple. Um, I mean, it's a, there's a scientific background and rationale to making some of these decisions. Uh, but sometimes, you know, it just, it just depends. And knowing what the parameters are, you know, the parenthetical parameters are, um, you know, it becomes probability and the probability of, uh, you know, what you want to happen happening and what you don't want to happen. And, and that's part of the art. Uh, of rangeland ecology and management, I guess. I don't know if that answered the question completely, but I feel good about saying it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess my my question to both of you, uh, having worked more in this in this part of the country, I, most of my familiarity is is down on the strip and and in northern Arizona. Given all of the variability in terms of uh, effectiveness and the need to be pretty responsive to uh, annual conditions, et cetera. Uh, do you find that, that most operators, particularly public lands operators, uh, have that kind of flexibility in, in either their permit or in their operation to be that responsive? Is that something that um, is, is the challenge that we might not know in the fall when we ought to be grazing or is the challenge that even when we know we should be doing it there are either operational or administrative challenges to actually making that happen uh, on the in the time frame that's necessary i'll go ahead and jump in um i you're right it's it's difficult and it's hard to be responsive i will say that i think producers are changing their minds they're learning new tools my father was a we grew up in North Dakota, and he he had a sign above his of his shop that said, "I've done so much with so little for so long that now I can do anything with nothing." The point of this is that ranchers are really creative, and when they've got their eye on the ball, they can find ways to do this better than us scientists. On the other hand, I think the policies that I know that Barry has been going up to Capitol Hill and trying to find a way to break through some of those. Uh, barriers to being responsive. So it's a little bit of each. Uh, and I also, I sit here and listen to this and I think, well, this all sounds great from a science perspective, but my gosh, what do you do if you're out there trying to make a living and make decisions on a daily basis? Right now, we don't have a lot of guidelines 
to give people. We have a few, but we don't have a lot of guidelines about how to manage cheatgrass day to day on the piece of ground that you're managing. And so I, I feel like we're at the beginning of this. And although, Matt, your research looked at a really broad scale across much of the Great Basin, which was very different than the work that I've done and a lot of the work that Barry has done. And both those pieces are going to have to be part of the puzzle. And so I'd like Barry to talk about some of that responsivity. But Matt, I also want you to think about um, and visit with us about that scale issue. How do you man? How do you research things at a big scale and manage them at a small scale? If I could just so either one of you can take that. I'll interrupt for just a second and say that I think this is one of the reasons why I'm excited about the possibility of fall and winter grazing because I think it solves some problems for the rancher. Uh, you know, one nearly every economic analysis of ranches in the last 50 years has identified winter feeding as uh, one of the main costs that puts them over the edge in terms of profitability. And so the possibility of using some of this lower elevation range ground for a winter range instead of spring range solves a number of problems, I think. One of them is economic in that uh, it's useful to be grazing. Anytime you're grazing instead of feeding, it's good economically. Second is that I still feel like the main limiting factor to promoting perennial grasses in most of the Intermountain West is, uh, you know, moderate to heavy grazing in the period in the spring and early summer when those plants are trying to produce seed heads. Some time ago on the podcast, Karen and I discussed some bad rules of thumb that have resulted in degradation on uh, shrub step semi-arid plant communities. And one of those is the the old adage that a plant's goal, a grass plant's goal in life is to produce a seed head, and the cowman's goal is to stop it from doing that. And of course, if you're working with rhizomatous or sod-forming plant communities that are stimulated by that frequent defoliation, just like your lawn grass, then that works fairly well because it keeps plants in a vegetative stage of growth and maintains forage quality for longer in the growing season. Uh, but if... You know, and of course, that, that rule of thumb would have worked pretty well in most of music Europe and worked fairly well on the East Coast and across quite a bit of the South. But once we get down below about 20 inches in precipitation, we shift toward more bunchgrass plant communities that are more dependent on seed production for reproduction. And so if those plants are prohibited from going to seed uh, most years, then we're significantly weakening the plant community. And I still think that's one of the main limiting factors in grazing in the Pacific Northwest and maybe all over the Intermountain West is late spring grazing. And of course, during that period of time, plants are, grass plants are palatable all the way down to the ground. Uh, animals have highest nutrient demand during that period of time because most of them are uh, lactating and rebuilding body condition uh, to rebreed. And so from an animal husbandry standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to have livestock on naturally occurring vegetation on rangelands during a period of time when what nature provides matches what the animal needs. Uh, but as, as many listeners may remember, uh, Ken Sanders and Wayne Burkhart published a paper, I want to say 2012 maybe, on a synthesis paper on what we know about growing season grazing on blue bunch wheatgrass in particular, which is the dominant in much of the Intermountain West. And what they concluded was that pretty much any anything that any 
combination of grazing variables that allows those plants to produce seed periodically uh, is, is necessary. That if they're prohibited from seed, producing seed every single year, uh, like if we're grazing in the same place at the same time, because that's just how the rotation works out, that's going to be damaging for perennial bunch grasses. And so I, uh, again, swinging back to what I recently said before we go back to Barry, uh, I think fall and winter grazing answers a couple, you know, really thorny questions. One of them is the long feeding period that's economically difficult or damaging for ranch economics at the micro scale, as well as the, the fact that it's useful to not graze those bunch grass ranges every year in spring and early summer. Well, I, you know, I could say this, I guess, is that, you know, the idea of grazing in the spring, uh, yes, under the right conditions or under the wrong conditions might be the better way to put it. Uh, we could uh, lessen the ability of some of our perennial plants to to uh, to reproduce. And of course, that was one of um, you know A.W. Sampson's um, big discoveries back in the early 1900s is that the the ranges were just grazed to the point where there was just there was no reproduction going on at all. And uh, and so. Uh, as long as we have our animal densities down, as long as our intensity, our grazing intensity and the timing, duration, uh, all together, as long as it is such that they're not eating every plant or every part of every plant, you know, an old cow or a sheep or a horse or, or antelope or, or elk, no matter what the grazer is, quite often they'll just take one bite out of the plant and they won't take all of the reproductive uh material on that uh, on that plant and they'll move on to the next plant and so as long as everything is is appropriate in terms of timing duration intensity and of course that takes into account the, the number of animals and how long they're there and when you turn them out um, as long as we leave some kind of reproductive uh, tissues there uh, these uh, these perennial plants are pretty doggone resilient uh, even with the episodic reproduction that that we see under the best of circumstances, um, you know they've persisted certainly um, since sometime in the Pleistocene. So uh, they do have some ability to um, uh, to survive and persist on these on these uh, Great Basin rangelands that we're talking about. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think this is one of the places where uh, the debate of stocking rate versus grazing system. Uh, has some some crossover. I guess my experience has been that at what I would call more conservative stocking rates, uh, livestock are more likely to take a single bite out of a given grass plant and maybe only remove you know 50% or less of the reproductive columns and then move on. And as long as they're not in that same spot two months later, that plant has half of its reproductive combs that successfully reproduce and produce viable seed. Uh, but if the animals are stay in the same place and at higher, uh, higher stocking rates, uh, they'll come back and take all of it. And, and in fact, you know, probably all of us have seen places where 
uh, we would say it has been slicked off, to use the technical term. You know, what that meant was people stayed, the rancher stayed until there was nothing green left standing. And that kind of management, uh, you know, for sure, is reducing the competitability of the perennial grasses and also uh, very likely exacerbating the spread and density of the, of the annuals. So, Tip, I think that uh, to some degree raises what I was thinking about, at least for from my experiences, the challenge with fall and winter grazing, uh, again, sort of in the southern end of, of cheatgrasses range, uh, are, are a couple fold, one of which has to do with availability and distribution of waters. That is, those pastures were not actually originally designed to hold animals during that time of the year. Mm-hmm. And so the ability to actually provide water to animals that are now there in the fall and winter as opposed to during the spring it's usually going to involve a pretty dramatic expense, possibly even uh, re-adjudication of a water right in terms of who gets the water. To create infrastructure. When. Right. That's right. And that's that's not a small challenge to overcome and one that doesn't have anything to do with our ecological knowledge. It's just the operations right. logistics. But I think to your point that, that you were just mentioning, those, those places where that slick off happens very generally are, are in the places where we're distributing water or mineral, right? So these are these are places that unless you have the ability to rotate your your animals through a number of different pastures or allotments that all are able to distribute those animals further away from the water, you're going to get those local, mm-hmm. highly disturbed sites where cheatgrass is likely to respond. And depending on the size and arrangement of those things, you may still end up with the same fire risk that you had before. And I, I think those are things that we don't, I think Karen asked this question, how do we think about this at, at broader scales? I think those are the sort of places where right. large scale studies are really important because it's not just the local fuel conditions that are going to mm-hmm. determine whether a fire becomes a small problem or uh, an entire region's problem. It's mm-hmm. the sort of arrangement of those things. And so uh, I I think your question about stocking rate and, and grazing rotation is a good one and one that, that is intricately, tri- intric- intricately tied to where waters are. And I would say that where waters are are part of the least flexible components of mm-hmm. anyone's grazing regime. So a conversation about rotations without talking about water access, availability, and flexibility is, is one that is sort of missing a vital component of how mm-hmm. these things play out in real life. Maybe that's different further north where uh, I can't imagine water is less controversial in Nevada than it is in Arizona, but I could be wrong. I think that's consistent across most of the Western states. <laughs> What's, what? Whiskey is for drinking and right, water is for just, fighting over? Let me just okay. put in two things to think about. Go ahead, Karen. Sorry, I, I'm sorry. It took me just a second to get back. Let me put in just two two things to think about. One is to be, I, I always warn myself, I'm a scientist now. I was a manager at one time, but I try to warn myself against solving management problems. If if we need fine water, et cetera, then that's another problem. And that's where we bring some producers in. The other is, remember that with fall and winter uh, grazing, you need a lot less water. Those animals, it's not hot. The, the vegetation is, um, you know, it's pretty stable. So we might have different water demands. And so I guess kind of my take home message is, yeah, this is, it's a problem. No, no doubt. Water 
distribution is an issue. But let's not solve that. Let's not let that stop ideas because I think ranchers often can can find ways to do these things. I think I, I, I appreciate that part, but I think I have to disagree with your first statement, especially given that part of your initial um, sort of discussion was about the challenge with, with our research causing problems in, in DC. And, and I think that to uh, act as if the discussions we're having about how grazing is managed across the West don't have major societal impacts and that the goal of all of the research that we're doing is to try and uh, improve those systems, whatever that looks like, whether that means better for the operator, better for the ecosystem, et cetera, I think is to neglect what it is a lot of us are actually in the business of doing, and that is research to try and improve the discussion. And I think uh, to the extent we are talking about some of the places where uh, ecology might make that difficult, then recognizing the operational constraints that exist out there and thinking about how our research sits within those operational constraints is, is 100% uh, how we get from doing research that we all read and no one does to doing research that might actually transform how things are being done. Well, your point, your point is well taken, Matt. Again, it's just like we can't do research and be ignorant of those operational aspects or the policy aspects or whatever. I, I, um, I just think there's a little bit of each. Um, we can't make decisions for one person on the ground, but you're absolutely right. We also can't be ignorant that the research that we're trying to do to try to affect the ecology and the economics and the sustainability of the West is going to have and be constrained by political and operational aspects. So your, your point is really good. Yeah, the optimist says it could be done. The pessimist says, but no one will do it. And uh, there's an old Roger Miller song, where have all the average people gone? <laughs> the person in the middle is trying to bring them all together. I've got a question before we before we quit the conversation. Uh, in, the, in the interview with Matt Germino with the USGS a little while back, uh, we had pretty poor recording quality. And so I think there may have been some of what he said that didn't get picked up well. But one of the things that really stood out to me that he felt uh, in our personal conversation was a major finding of some of their research on the soda fire uh, was that plant spacing was a much bigger factor uh, than just simple basal area or the relative abundance in terms of uh, you know species composition of perennial grasses was not as important as plant spacing. So if you had equal basal area on a site, uh, but one of them was composed of smaller plants that had tighter plant spacing, that site would be significantly more effective in uh, keeping cheatgrass out than the one that had uh, very large bunch grasses that had a lot of girth, but had significantly larger interspaces between the plants. Uh, so one of my questions is, you know, what do we know by what mechanisms we can create that tighter plant spacing? Uh, you know, one option obviously is to make sure that whatever we're doing is promoting seed production and overcoming some of the barriers to seedling establishment so that you've got uh, a wide, uh, you've got distribution of age classes in a given plant community. Uh, but does anybody have any thoughts on, on how management variables may contribute to uh, larger, more widely spaced plants versus tighter plants? 
feel free to speculate. <laughs> I, I'm at a loss. Um, I agree with you about thinking about the uh, seedlings. And that that's a tough one because the times when seedlings are really viable and are going to produce plants is uh, some one year and none the next year across decades. Uh, so that seems one of them. I have read about trying to um, use, uh, you know, where grazing will kind of separate plants out, but I don't think that's a very strong mechanism in the plants that we're dealing with. So I don't know. Uh, that might be a Matt or Barry question. <laughs> I don't know. I do know this is that there, there, there are some years, you know, you, you have recruitment and you only have recruitment in these semi-arid areas ever so often, you know, sagebrush might be anything from, you know, two and a half to 10 years or more, um, just recruiting anything substantial into the population. And, and, Perennial grasses aren't that much different either. You know, we know there's years you go out there, uh, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and or more, and, and you go out there and every once in a while you'll see one of those years where everything was right and you've just got lots of recruitment from your perennial grasses. And I think that uh, if the federal grazing regulations provided a means for the flexibility to deal with those kinds of years, just like you would say, for instance, uh, if you went out and you you, you did a, a bunch of fire rehab on a certain particular, you know, on a, on a droughty five to eight uh, type of an ecological site, that may be an ecological site. I might not want to put cattle or sheep in there that first year or maybe the second year, or, you know, who knows, depending on any given sequence of years. And so um, if we have the flexibility in the grazing regulations, and, and like as I said earlier, the new ones are, are, the drafts are out. I've not had a chance to look at them yet. I'm hoping to do that this week. But if we have flexibility built in to the grazing regulations that would allow us to make annual decisions in time, so that the individual producers can make a ch change in their routines because every, every permittee's enterprise is different from the next one. And, and so, but if we had these general uh, flexibilities built into our federal grazing regulations that would allow some real-time changes and movements uh, I think that would be, you know, that would be a good step in the right direction. May not solve all the problems, but I think it would be a, a step in the right direction. I think, uh, I think Barry and I probably would agree on that. And I, I think the only thing I would add to that is that uh, with real-time flexibility comes the need for, for real-time monitoring and the ability to actually uh, inform those decisions and, and to some degree uh, document those decisions. We, we started the conversation with some um, urge to accept the notion that these are mixed annual and perennial grass systems, not degraded sagebrush systems. And, and I would argue, at least on the public lands, that that's a societal decision and one that we should probably not just assume everyone agrees with us on. But regardless of where people end up, on that question, they will want to understand why this flexibility is beneficial. And I think 
in, in my mind, the best answer to that question comes in the form of data that says, here's what we were seeing on the allotment this year. We decided to change course because it didn't make sense to keep doing the thing we were doing. I think that's an important thing for all of us to have uh, as we try to, to become more flexible to changing weather patterns, et cetera. But I recognize that when you say that, that you need more monitoring, we're talking about a pretty big increase in expense in terms of agencies that don't have the resources currently to actually do things like that. Does that burden then fall onto the operator? Well, they're already working in, in similarly constrained conditions. And so I, I agree, flexibility is, is important, but, but that flexibility has to come with some accountability, at least on public lands. And ideally, if we're going to learn over the long term, being able to sort of track under the conditions that we actually made different decisions will help us all get better at, at uh, doing these different parts of our job. So I, I, I agree with Barry and just would add that an increased uh, emphasis on the monitoring component that informs that flexibility is, is pretty important. Yeah, two thoughts on that, and then I think we'll wrap it up unless uh, anybody has a, a final message they want to communicate. I think that's a place where um, there's, it seems like every week I hear of a new tool coming online of satellite data being transformed into something that, you know, might have pretty useful management implications where we're dramatically increasing our ability to detect things like the extent and and density of invasive annual grass and maybe even getting us with the complexity of trying to being able to characterize plant species composition more broadly using satellite data over time and tracking the changes in that over time and so some of that monitoring um, may be you know fairly productively offloaded to these uh, remotely sensed applications that might provide higher quality data than than even what somebody could do on the ground uh, because you one of the papers I saw from Neil Sanders a while back was was arguing that uh, what we need on because we're mostly dealing with vast heterogeneous plant communities, we need need more extensive rangeland monitoring rather than uh, less frequent intensive rangeland monitoring. So if we've got a twenty five thousand acre allotment, it's there's there's benefit in having five intensive monitoring points where we measure all kinds of stuff. But there might be more benefit in having fifty locations where you measure a fewer number of things uh, and it's getting giving you a little better idea of what's happening across the entire thing and and then finally regarding the flexibility of grazing plans it seems like you know one of the conclusions from your most from this recent paper and study was that uh, at a minimum the status quo of having livestock out there doesn't seem to be reducing cheatgrass we're going to have to do something even if we even if we uh, can show that under controlled circumstances, we're able to reduce cheatgrass abundance, maybe even long-term by using controlled livestock grazing. It only works if you do the livestock grazing in that way and you have managers that buy into that approach and are able to execute it with both their own management skills and the infrastructure they've got access to. Uh, but you know, to that end, I think the agencies having flexibility seems like, uh, you know, pardon the phrase, that's a no-brainer because doing what we've been doing doesn't seem to be solving the problem. And so 
at a minimum doing something different gives people who are on the ground the flexibility to make some decisions on their own within their own context with the tools that they have and the resources they have and the infrastructure they have and let them make some of those decisions themselves instead of trying to uh, broad brush it with a policy that doesn't, you know, one size fits all really is one size fits nobody. Does anybody have any final closing comments you'd like to leave with? I just want to say thanks, Tip, in that, um, you know, these are complex issues and, uh, and we need to find ways to have these conversations. And, uh, and we started out saying, you know, grazing, I'm going to go with Barry's comment, grazing is not a, a, a noun, it's a verb. And so the sooner we can get into talking about what it is about this issue across the West and have differing opinions and have differing science and try to get to the end, this is one step in the right direction. So thank you, Tip. You're welcome. And thank you. Yeah, Tip, I'd just echo uh, my gratitude as well. Uh, anytime we can uh, discuss these things, I think it's uh, we're all better off for it. And uh, hopefully we can at least at some point in time improve on the peer review process uh, for uh, uh, all of us uh, in this profession. And uh, uh, I think uh, I think that would be good. So thanks again for the opportunity. Thank you. And thank you, Matt, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, anytime I can get to learn from folks who have been working on this stuff for as, as long as you all have, it's a benefit. Uh, I hope you all realize that I don't think that there is, uh, I think there is place for all of our results to exist here. And I think thinking about how grazing has affected things doesn't preclude thinking about how we want it to affect things going forward. And I, I think all of our work sort of fits somewhere along that spectrum. And so uh, looking forward to seeing how those conversations evolve going forward. Well said. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thank you.